Well, now this evening, um, I'm going to seek to cover the background of Malachi and the key to the book of Malachi. Um, we have already uh, covered the introduction and the authorship and date, and I'm not going to go back over any of that. It's all recorded, and if any of you want to hear it, you will be able to do so. Some of the things we shall say, both concerning the background and the key, of course, we have already either mentioned or said something about um, already. Now, what can we say about the background of Malachi? Apart from this one book, we know nothing about the prophet himself at all. We have already spoken of the difficulties concerning the name Malachi and the problem of any exact dating within a few years. Of the general period, we can be sure. We know that um, Malachi must have the ministered, whoever he was, whether it was a title or whether it uh, was an actual personal name, he must have ministered sometime between 516 and 350. Somewhere between that period, we know that he must have ministered. Malachi, either as a name or as a person, is not mentioned anywhere in Scripture, nor indeed is it mentioned without of scripture, without scripture, or with any real helpfulness, as far as we are concerned. To make the mystery deeper still, the very book itself reveals nothing personal about the writer. We have no personal details about uh, this Malachi at all. Some of the books, of course, reveal a little bit even sometimes to perhaps a mention of a, of a certain town or a certain village or some part of the area or something or other. But here we have absolutely no mention at all of any personal details concerning the person of the prophet. All is shrouded in secrecy. If we know nothing of the personal background, and if scripture doesn't reveal it, it's no point in trying to pry into what has obviously uh, been hidden. If we know nothing of the personal background of the prophet, we can say something about the general background. It is essentially the same as that of Haggai and Zechariah, Ezra and Nehemiah. The general background of those four great men is the background, generally speaking, of the book of Malachi. Persia was the great world power of the day, with a well-organized empire stretching from Greece to India, one of the greatest empires in ancient history, and a very, very wonderfully and highly organized administration. They had a marvelous postal system. They had a, a single coinage system. They had um, a number of other uh, means of administration which uh, bound the whole empire together. And one of the features 
of the Persian Empire was that it was based not on centralized government, but on regional government. And this was a new, uh, new thing altogether in those days. Um, each large area, the whole empire was split up into various satrapies, and a satrap was put over them, a pasha as we've come to call them uh, today, who was uh, in charge. He was like the viceroy um, of each various section of the, of the empire and responsible to the king or the emperor. The policies of the Persian government, of the Persian Empire, were, on the whole, enlightened. Uh, in the, we can say, um, about their policies, for instance, that as far as religion goes, they allowed, they were the first great empire to allow freedom of religion. And they allowed all the various um, nations within the empire uh, freedom to worship as they wished. They also gave a certain amount of home rule as well. They even went so far as to appoint uh, nationals of various areas uh, as, uh, uh, as responsible officials um, over them. There was a certain amount of home rule as well. One thing I suppose we can say about the general background is that already the first faint rumbling could be heard of the, of the coming Greek era, which in 331, with Alexander the Great, was to break upon world history. Now that's just something about the, um, the background. As I said, the, the Persians allowed freedom of religion and a certain amount of home rule. And so it was that in 536, Zerubbabel, and Joshua were allowed to lead a quite sizable company back from exile to the promised land. They not only um, came, they were not only permitted to come back, but they were given the actual financial help of Cyrus, the king or uh, emperor, uh, to come back to the promised land, to Jerusalem, and rebuild the house of God and the uh, city of God. <clears throat> so it was that um, this godly and faithful remnant under the leadership of the governor, uh, Zerubbabel, and of the high priest, uh, Joshua, came back to the promised land, the first to return for some uh, 50 to 70 years. And when they came back, the first thing they did, and this is instructive, was to build the altar. They did not bother about the temple, and they did not bother about the foundation, and they did not bother about the city. The first thing they did on arrival was to set up the altar. About a year later, they cleared and repaired and laid the foundation of the new temple. And then very soon after, as far as we can tell, uh, the work was abandoned, either because of disillusionment or disappointment or the general hardship or conflict, it was abandoned. Some 15 years later, round about 520, 
the Lord raised two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who were partners in the ministry. They were actual colleagues. And it was through their ministry that God caused the recommencement of the work. And it resulted in the temple being completed some four to five years later in 516 in great scenes of jubilation and joy. Um, that's roughly at least a little bit to the background of the first return. In 458 BC, another company returned, a second wave of the remnant who were to come back came under the leadership of Ezra the scribe. Now Ezra the scribe is one of the most interesting personalities in scripture. Ezra was evidently secretary of state for Jewish affairs in the Persian government. Uh, from what we can gather, most modern scholarship thinks of him as such. And he, in this unique position, he was able to get permission to leave the Persian capital, Babylon, and come back to the promised land, and he initiated, under God the Holy Spirit, that great reformation, inward and outward, of the moral character and life of the nation. The first thing, you see, was to do with the altar, the foundation, and the temple, and the second thing was to do with the law of God, all to do with moral character and life. Um, it is very interesting that it was through the public reading, the public study, and the public interpretation of the scriptures that this reformation took place. It is one of the amazing facts of history that whenever God's word has been unleashed, a reformation has taken place. If you look back into church history, at any time um, up to, um, shall we say, the New Testament era, and then if you look right through the New Testament era and on into the Old Testament era, you will find every time the scriptures have been unleashed, publicly read and honoured, publicly studied and obeyed, and interpreted so that they could be understood, it has resulted in real reformation. Well, now that's what happened under the second great return. In 445 BC, the third and final wave of those who returned came back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. Now, this again is very interesting because evidently someone who was... Um, uh, in control of the area for Ezra uh, was only uh, probably hadn't got the authority actually over the local region. Uh, it is interesting that God raised up Nehemiah who got himself appointed somehow as governor of Judah and armed with um, royal permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. This is very interesting. It was because the walls of Jerusalem hadn't been rebuilt that the work was continually interfered with. So Nehemiah came back in, again, in a unique position, 
whereas Ezra had authority to interfere, as it were, with the life and morality of the nation, now Nehemiah had authority to interfere with the political nation and uh, nature um, of the uh, uh, of the nation, the circumstances. And so we have Nehemiah comes back, and it was through. Him, he was the main spring behind the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So we see <clears throat> that the background, the immediate background of the book of Malachi is this. We see that all was restored, rebuilt, and recovered. And it began with the altar and ended with the walls. And it is true that if God ever starts to recover anything, um, however small, it begins with the cross and ends with the testimony. So do remember that. It's a very great lesson uh, bound up in these three returns of the remnant, the godly and faithful remnant. It begins with the altar, that's the first thing, the cross. The second thing is to see the foundation is right, that's Jesus Christ alone. The third thing is to see that the temple is built, that is we're built together in him. The next thing is to see that our moral character is right, that there's not the looseness and compromise which can undo everything else. Morality. And the last thing is the testimony, the all-encompassing and closing thing of the walls of the city. To stop any further interference, that security given to us by being found in him and making sure that this testimony that we hold is something we're guarding for him. Well, now, that's generally the background. Nevertheless, we've got to say a bit more about the background as far as Malachi is concerned, otherwise we shall not understand the book. By the end of the time of Nehemiah, somewhere around about here, about 430, somewhere, something like that, around about the end of Nehemiah's uh, governorship, those influences which were ultimately to produce the background of Christ's life on earth, uh, were already at work. A great nominal Judaism, with all its various parties and factions, was arising. A respectable traditionalism and institutionalism had begun with much outward observance and little inward experience. And buried within it, seemingly, was the true church under the old covenant, those who really knew the Lord. And in many ways, this has so much to say to us. You see, um, this is again is a little aside, but it may help you. It will certainly help us later when we come to the New Testament. You see, it was at this period that Pharisaism began. It was in this period that Sadduceeism began. It was in this period that the Essenes began. As yet, in this era, 
they were not defined, they were not clearly marked, but the influences which were going to mould them in, in the finish into clearly defined distinct parties, which made up the very background of the Lord Jesus, were already at work here. And furthermore, you, will, you can see them in the book of Malachi. It is to these conditions that Malachi speaks. All had been restored, the temple, the priesthood, the services, the city, the people, the land. Everything now at the end of Nehemiah's governorship was back where it ought to be. We've got the altar, we've got the foundation, we've got the completed temple, we have the priesthood and the Levites, we have the offerings and the sacrifices, we have the services. Everything that God's law required was in operation and was functioning. But beyond the temple, there was the city, there were its walls. And now because the walls were there, prosperity was coming within the city. And people were able to build their homes happily because the walls were security and safety for them. And beyond the walls, the land was repopulated. And once again, it was being farmed and was yielding a harvest. All this had taken place in these years between 536 and 430, roughly a century of recovery and restitution. The life of God's people was rightly centering in the temple. There was a proper observance of the need, now mark it, the need, I'll say a bit more about that later, there was a proper observance of the need of sacrifices and offerings within the temple. And for tithing, all this was recognized and there was an observance uh, that it was necessary. Um, evidently there was also um, uh, an eager waiting for the Messiah. I wonder whether this was partly due to Zechariah's final phase of ministry, when he more clearly than any other prophet foretold the coming of the Lord. And you remember, he connected it with the temple being rebuilt. And it may well have been that the people in Malachi's day were waiting for the Messiah to come at any moment. See? And it is interesting if you look at chapter 3, perhaps you've overlooked this, when reading, it, uh, you can overlook it very easily. After all that the Lord says about them, as being rather careless and indifferent, it seems rather remarkable in chapter 3 and verse 1, when he says, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek. That's rather remarkable, isn't it? The Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Well, taking the book by and large, you wouldn't say they were either seeking the Lord or delighting uh, in uh, the messenger of the covenant. But you see, there was evidently amongst the people a very uh, real sense in which the whole life of the nation centered in the temple, in which there was an observance of the need for sacrifice and offering and tithing, and there was an eager anticipation and expectation of the coming Messiah, of Christ, the coming Christ. All these things. 
And then again, we can say something else. Idolatry, that ancient and persistent sin of God's children, had vanished, as had any disregard or ignorance of the law. These two things which had characterized God's people in times past now had gone. In its place had begun that pious formalism which covered a multitude of contradictions under a cloak of seeming godliness and unworldliness. For you see, we must not forget, and this may be a shock to some, that in Malachi we see two clear streams, both of which come under the judgment of God. There was, on the one hand, the kind of observance and practice which is careful to keep the law and yet, at the same time, careful to be free to deny it in spirit. Tithes are offered, but not the whole. Offerings and sacrifices are offered and sacrificed, but they are blind, lame, mutilated, and diseased. Now, we must understand this. Again, we can say service is rendered, but it is routine. It is just a routine. They say, what a weariness it is. It's service. There are all the priests. There are the Levites. Here they are taking the sacrifices. Here, are they, here they are um, slaying and pouring out the blood, seeing that it goes everywhere. Everything's touched by the blood. And, so, and yet, you see, it's routine. It's just officialdom. See? It's um, professional. That's all. The service is professional. Now, you see, here you have one clear stream in the book of Malachi. And you and I have got to understand this. This is a, this is a kind of thing that can hide under, under, under a form of godliness. This can be utterly separate from the world and yet be in God's eyes as sinful and as detestable as anything that is right in the world. That's one stream. And here it is in the book of Malachi. You've got the observance of the law. It's all there, but, but, the spirit of the thing is wholly against the spirit of the law. Now, you see, this gets, this finds us all out, uh, because, uh, you see, this is Phariseeism. Uh, with one hand, you keep the law beautifully, but with the other, you get out of it beautifully. In one sense, you outwardly observe all, but inwardly you escape the real meaning and challenge of it. One clear stream in the book of Malachi. Now, I can give you some scriptures, but I won't because of time. I'll leave that. If anyone wants them, they can come to me afterwards. On the other hand, there was another stream. And this we can call a loose element 
in the life of God's people. And I might say, I'm sure, or shall I put it more cautiously, possibly, possibly, this other stream considered themselves to be enlightened and modern, contemporary. And as a result of the foreign influences of the exile, and as a result of the restoration under foreign government and domination, they saw absolutely no wrong in mixed marriages whatsoever. In fact, it may well have been that if we had talked with them, they would have argued that, um, well, there was something to be said for introducing other blood into the nation. Um, maybe they had had a disregard for the ladies uh, within the covenant people. I don't know. Perhaps they thought the ladies outside were better stocked. But whatever it was, they certainly are. And there were such ideas and there were such, such an outlook prevalent uh, in those days. They argued. They argued for their stand. And what was the result? The result was much divorce and much unhappiness. It's an interesting thing that the Lord, in speaking to them, speaks of the wife of their, of their youth. And it would seem, terrible as it may seem to all of us, that it was old men who were divorcing their old wives and marrying young foreign women. So here you see there's a, a, a loose element that's come into the life of God's people, something that, that is degrading, and whilst it's it would probably be argued for, and reasons given for it, and so on, for its rightness, here we've got it. Now, this was found in high places. If you turn to Nehemiah 13, you will find that the high priest's grandson was one of them. And Nehemiah was so angry and so shocked that he plucked the hair from his beard and chased him from, uh, from, the, uh, from the temple. He chased him out from the temple. The high priest's grandson had married a foreigner. So evidently, it is clear that uh, this, was, um, this practice had uh, woven its way into high places and people right in the very service of God, priestly families, were actually allowing this thing to come in. So it was with all this background that God spoke his final word before the appearing of Christ, the last message of the long prophetic succession and the concluding word of the Old Testament canon. And in it, as in every book, we see, perhaps more clearly than in some, the heart and the mind of God. No more to be revealed until it is fully and finally revealed in Christ. So this book of Malachi has a lot to say to us. There were to be four centuries of silence in which after all the millenniums that God had spoken through various men, he was now to remain silent. The silence of God is as interesting and as instructive as his word. 
So after Malachi, he speaks no more. Yes, he works, but he speaks no more. Malachi is God's last word before Christ appears. Well, that's all we can say about the background. What can we say about the key to this book? <clears throat> it's not so easy to find the key to Malachi. I don't know if you've all been studying Malachi. I hope you have. It's only four small chapters. I don't know whether any of you feel you found the key to the book. But, you know, it's not so easy to find the key to Malachi. At first, <clears throat> there would seem to be a number of keys. Uh, although it's a small book, it's as if the whole Old Testament is condensed into a few words. You've got so much. I've been, most, I've been really quite thrilled as I've studied the little book of Malachi. Little things that perhaps we overlook. Esau and Jacob, you know what a great chunk of, of Genesis that takes. Esau and Jacob. And then uh, all this about tithes and offerings and, and, um, and sacrifices and service. You know, the whole book of Leviticus and quite a bit, really, of some of the other books of the Pentateuch are absorbed and condensed in these few words here. And then you read about the Lord's covenant with Levi. Do you remember that wonderful story of, of, of the tribe of Levi, how they stood out against all the other tribes when there was that awful backsliding? And their subsequent history, well, the whole book of Numbers, not the whole book perhaps, but a very large part of the book of Numbers is taken up with the Levites. And there's so much in the rest of God's word about the Levites and their, and their function and place. And take one other little instance. We've already mentioned last week Moses and Elijah, but take the one little word Mount Horeb. Most interesting. Do you know that Mount Horeb marked the greatest experience in not only Moses' life, but Elijah's. Mount Horeb was where God said to Moses, take off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. That was Mount Horeb. Saw God in the burning book. And many, many centuries later, Elijah ran away from Jezebel. And an angel helped him to go on his way uh, by feeding him in the night and then again in the morning. And he went on to Horeb hid himself in a cave, and it was there that he saw the earthquake and the fire and the wind, and finally a voice of gentle stillness. God spoke. The two greatest experiences in the lives of these two men centered in Horeb. So, you know, there's a tremendous amount in this little book. The whole of the Old Testament is condensed in it. And we have many recurring and striking phrases. For example, now if you want to take a pencil, you can note these down and you can just go through your, uh, your, this little book yourself and underline them. See how many times, see what it yields for you. For instance, this is one phrase. I'm not going to give you the verses, I'm only going to tell you the phrases. The day comes. You look that up. The day comes, or the day which I make, or even better, I think, as in the latest version, the day when I act. That's beautiful. The day when I act. Now, there's an awful lot in this little book about that day. And then again, uh, another, tithes. Look up the mention every time this word tithes comes in. I think you might think you've got the key to the book. And then again, take the little word offering, or offer, or offered. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twen
look it up, you'll find a tremendous amount about offering pure offering and um, other offerings that are wrong and so on. There's an awful lot. And there's that wonderful phrase about the Lord being the finer and purifier of the sons of Levi till there is a right offering presented in Jerusalem. Well, there's a lot about offering. Sacrifice is another word. Uh, there is a word which is unique in the Old Testament, the Lord's table, or the altar of the Lord. Um, again, you have the two used together, and they mean the same thing, the Lord's table or altar, except that the altar is never called anywhere else the Lord's table. But the New Testament calls it the Lord's table. Isn't that wonderful? And then again, you have this word messenger. Uh, you know, of course, Malachi means my messenger. And you have it in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, behold, my messenger. Uh, but it's interesting also uh, that in chapter 2 and uh, verse, um, verse 7, it says of the sons of Levi, the priest, he is the messenger of the Lord. So again, you see, here's another little theme that runs through this book. Then again, take another word, refining and purifying. If you take this little word, I think you'll find it will unlock an awful lot in the book. Refining and purifying. Pure. The word pure. Just take that. And so we could go on. There are many more recurring phrases. Yet none of these are the key. <clears throat> there are two matters, however, which we have already mentioned last week which seem to comprehend all the others. My covenant and the name of the Lord. These two um, you will find more than anywhere else. I'll just run through the scriptures again for you. Uh, last week we did read them all. I'll just give them to you. Malachi 2, verse 4, 5, 8, and 10. Chapter 3, verse 1. And note, chapter 4, verse 4. I'll read that to you. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto you, unto him in Horeb for all Israel. Uh, the word Horeb, by the way, is exactly the same as Sinai. And then uh, the name of the Lord, Malachi 1, verse 6, verse 11, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 5, chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 4, verse 2. These two matters, the covenant of God, the covenant of the Lord, and the name of the Lord, sum up the whole Old Testament, without exception. Every single theme in the Old Testament is somehow bound up and related to either the covenant or the name of the Lord. And then again, in the book of Malachi, and again, this is impressive, every single abuse which is exposed or underlined is related to either the name of the Lord or to the covenant of the Lord or to both. Now, that's impressive. It's most interesting if we turn back to the book of Exodus to discover that the name of the Lord, the covenant of the Lord, 
and Mount Horeb, or Sinai, are all connected. Now let's turn back, because this really is, um, it explains the book of Malachi. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, f he, and he led the flock to the back of the wilderness and came to the mountain of God unto Horeb. Now verse, um, verse 12. And God said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be the token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain, Horeb. Now compare that with Exodus 24. Turn over to, to chapter 24. And you will find this whole chapter, I'm not going to read it, but you will find the whole chapter is the covenant that God made with them in the mountain. Here it's called Sinai, it's the same mount, the Mount Horeb. They've come back and they're serving the Lord as God told Moses they would when they came out of Egypt. They're back and here the covenant is being made with them. Now turn on to Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 2. And here we have the second account of what happened as recorded in Exodus. And Moses now doesn't speak of Sinai, he calls it Horeb. Listen, verse 2, The Lord Jehovah our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Jehovah made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. And then he goes on and we get the, the um, Ten Commandments and so on. Now, have you noticed, it's the name Jehovah. Turn back to Exodus, chapter 3, where Moses first saw the Lord. Verse 14, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. He revealed himself as Jehovah. Now, when you get in Scripture this term, the name of the Lord, it generally refers to Jehovah. The name Jehovah. The name of the Lord. Now, here you have three things connected. The name of the Lord, the covenant of the Lord, and Mount Horeb. And these three things you find in Malachi. It is most interesting, um, this, uh, that you discover that the revelation of the name of the Lord is connected with the covenant of the Lord. Now again, um, look back again, chapter 3 of Exodus. <clears throat> I want you to note that the name of the Lord is connected with the people now. Exodus 3, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. 
Now, this is very interesting. It is the first time in the whole Bible that the Lord calls any people my people. My people. It is even more remarkable because he referred to them once or twice as their people and your people and not his. Now he refers to them as my people. Verse 7. All right, verse 10. Again, same passage. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if you will look again at this verse 14, the Lord said, I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, said, Thus saith Jehovah, the God of Israel, let my people go. The name of the Lord is connected with a people for himself. And then again, chapter 6, verse 2, this is how the Lord begins again. I am Jehovah. Verse 8, last part. I am Jehovah. He begins and ends this statement to Moses. I am Jehovah, the name of the Lord. Now look at verse 6 and 7. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am Jehovah, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am Jehovah your God, who bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and so on. Now really, um, I don't know whether you've got hold of what I'm trying to say. You see, the name of the Lord is connected with the people of the Lord. This revelation of the name Jehovah. The Lord said also here in this same portion that he had not before ever spoken. Verse 2, last part. But by my name Jehovah I was not known to them. This is the revelation of the Lord's name to Moses and it is immediately and always connected with a people and the covenant. And it all started at what we call Mount Horeb. Now this is just simply the book of Malachi. Now what does the covenant speak of? It speaks of salvation. Yes, salvation through blood. It speaks of life. It speaks of relationship. A covenant means God brings us through grace into an eternal relationship with himself. What does the covenant mean for you and me? What did it mean for them? It meant, first of all, you and I have been saved. We're redeemed. We're not redeemed because we're anything, but because he's done something. Through the lamb slain, we are redeemed. A covenant through precious blood. We have life. The life of God, which none others can, no others can have. Because we are in a covenant relationship with God. He allows us a right to the tree of life. He allows us right to Christ. Do you understand? The cherubim guarded the way to sinful, uncovenanted man. 
guarded the way. But once there was the blood, God opens the way to life. But more than life, relationship. It means that you and, and the Lord are related. You become part of each other. You are joined together. You come into his family. He becomes your father. You become his son. He becomes your God. And you and I become his people. And not only relationship. And by the way, I might just say, this word relationship nearly always brings in the question of holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. That's the question of relationship. And you get it with the covenant again and again, underlined. And you've got it in the book of Malachi. See, all this is in the book of Malachi. And then, what else do you have? You have marriage. Yes, divine marriage. Covenant is looked upon in Scripture as a marriage bond between God and his own. It's not merely that he saved you. It's not merely that he's given you eternal life. It's not merely that you've given a, a relationship to himself. But he marries you. He enters into a covenant relationship with us all. We become his bride. And he becomes the bridegroom. And then the service. The covenant has always spoken of service. We are, as we have often mentioned, often has been said in Christian service, we are saved to serve. And, uh, and it's true, although sometimes it's abused and, and misused. But it is essentially true that if you and I are a covenant people, we have been saved in order to be married to God in order to serve. Not just to serve the Lord, but to serve others with the Lord. You see, our Lord Jesus is the great servant. And it's the most amazing thing that God can serve where his people sometimes can't. Jesus can wash the saints at the feet of saints and of sinners. He can wash the feet of a Judas. But his people often can't. This is the amazing nature of service. And this covenant relationship is to bring us into this service of the Lord. Well, that's one thing. What does the name speak of then? Well, the name speaks of honor. The word, the Hebrew word, could be translated renown or honor. It means honor. Yes, do you realize what happens when you are saved? You are given honor. And heaven says, I, uh, that person may be a wretched and miserable sinner, but they are honourable in the sight of God. Why are they honourable? Because the name has been given. And that's why. Honourable. It is honour. And that's why there's such a lot in this little book of, of Malachi about despising the name of the Lord. You see, it is dishonoured, this name. Honour. Yes, it's not only honour. Uh, following on from that is authority. Authority in the name. Oh, I wish we could see the authority that is in the name of the Lord. If we really knew how it was to pray in the name of the Lord, if we only knew how it was to touch the world in the name of the Lord, if only we knew how to touch those who are ill and sick and mentally troubled in the name of the Lord, if we only knew how to bring this great name to bear on situations, Oh, what, what might not yield? The name of the Lord means authority. The name of the Lord means refuge. Listen, the name of the Lord is a high tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. 
refuge. There's safety in the name of the Lord, you see. And again, this is what the name of the Lord means. Do you know what it is to hide in the name? Oh, I've seen some Christians take on the devil uh, and uh, they think they're, they're doing the Lord a great service, you know, and they take him on, they say something unguarded, or they go out and brandish some little weapon of their own making at him. They shake their fist in his face, and of course a devil comes and, and they're down. They're gone. Because, you see, you and I have got to know what the armor of the Lord is and how to get into it. That is the name of the Lord. It's our refuge and our safety. We can battle with the enemy. Psalm 118, in the name of the Lord I will cut them off. They compassed me round about like bees. But in the name of the Lord I will cut them off. That's safe because there's refuge and safety there. But there is much more in this question of the name. I have put it down here as incorporation because I do not know how else to explain it. But the name of the Lord means incorporation. Now what does incorporation mean? It means that you are brought into the body of. Yes, you are incorporated. You are made the body you are made part of Christ. You are incorporated. When I pray in the name of Jesus, I'm really simply saying, I'm part of the Lord, Father. I'm part of Christ. I belong to him. I'm joined to him. I'm in his body. See? In the name. And this, this is found everywhere, even in the Old Testament. The place where I shall cause my name to dwell. The dwelling place of the Lord. That's a symbol, isn't it? And it's a symbol what of? It is a symbol of the body. The tabernacle, the temple, are symbols, are pictures of Christ corporate. So here we have all this, and it's all in the book of Malachi, as I suppose we ought to expect, quite rationally. It concludes the Old Testament canon. And this is the message of the Old Testament. It's summed up in these two, uh, two matters. The covenant of the Lord and the name of the Lord. Let's try now and put it all simply. Rather a welter of words there. Let's try and now sum it all up in a few simple words. Well, we can say this. By the blood of his covenant, we have been saved and made his people his own possession. We have been brought into an eternal relationship with him of life, of service, and of purpose. That explains the covenant and the name. When the people of God sin, when you sin, when I sin, it is not some small thing that we dabble in, but in the end, it is a despising of the name of the Lord and a profaning of the covenant. Now, therein lies the seriousness of Malachi's prophecy. 
You see, he's, he refuses to look upon these blind offerings and lame offerings and mutilated offerings and diseased offerings as just something that is small and after all, well, what can we do? The Lord's not going to worry about little things like that. There are bigger things to worry about. You see, here is something which goes, which is like, it's like the, the, the hands of a clock they show the time. They show, really, that they, they are signs of something invisible. Evidence. And these are just symptoms which, which are small. But you know, a little straw can tell you the way the wind's blowing. And a blind sacrifice can tell only too clearly to the Lord a whole moral condition, a spiritual condition that lies behind. It's not really something small. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. These little things that sound well, they're only small things. They're not so small. They reveal an underlying condition. They, they, they reveal <coughs> a kind of character well, now, you see, that's why this little book has something so solemn to say to us. Because um, I don't suppose there are any of us who have not at some time or another despised the name of the Lord. Let me put it another way. We've taken the name of the Lord in vain. So, but it's serious. Or... We've profaned the covenant. That's a terrible word, profaned. It means we've made it a worldly thing. We've made it secular. We've, we've reduced it to something ordinary and humdrum to be put alongside all the other things. We've profaned. And it has that, that feeling and that atmosphere of blasphemy behind it. Well, it's an awful thing. This is what this little book speaks about. Now, in closing this evening, I would like to touch on something more because, in fact, this is not the key. The covenant of the Lord and the name of the Lord are two major Themes, if you like, it's the twofold major theme of uh, Malachi. But it is not the key. Uh, we have to look. <coughs> we have to look a little deeper. <coughs> what is the key to Malachi? Take take the little book and read these words, chapter one and verse two. I have loved you says the Lord that's the key to the book of Malachi I have loved you now my dear friends when you and I see that rather than taking the sting out of all this question of despising the name of the Lord and profaning the covenant 
it adds to it a most awful, awful solemnity. And somehow or other, it makes one just sense that behind this little book lies all the grief of God over a wayward people. I have loved you. In fact, those, those little, that little sentence is, is majestic in its simplicity. You will see that it, it stands on its own. It stands on its own. It is the opening statement of this book. Uh, he goes on to say, but you say, wherein hast thou loved us? This is how the Lord speaks first to this people. I have loved you, said the Lord. Not, it's not an argument. He doesn't, he doesn't say, yet I have loved you. No, it's a statement. I have loved you, says the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? I have loved you, says the Lord. Oh, dear child of God. You see, really the Lord speaks that into your heart. He speaks it into mine. You may be guilty, I don't know, this evening of despising the name of the Lord and of profaning the covenant. And yet, you know, the first word the Lord would say to you is, I have loved you, saith the Lord. That's the first word he would say to you. Before there comes this matter of the, of the awfulness of despising the name, profaning the covenant, the Lord wants you to understand a very, very simple and profound thing that lies behind all his ways with you. I have loved you, saith the Lord. The key to this little book of Malachi is found in three words in Ephesians chapter 2, his great love. That's the key to the book. If you take Malachi and you look, you will find chapter 2, verse 11. Listen again. For Judah, last part of the verse, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Simple statement. The sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Again, take um, chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I often used to puzzle over that statement. Now I understand it. And the Lord says, your love's fickle. I don't change. My love's the same. Therefore you're not consumed. If my love was like yours, you would have long ago been chucked out. You would have long ago been destroyed. But, but I don't change. Therefore you are not consumed. For sons of Jacob. I think <clears throat> when we understand this, we have an answer to a question that's often asked. Why should an almighty God persist with a rebellious and sinful people? Why? Why should God persist with me? Why should he persist with you, listening to your murmurings and your groanings and your ups and your downs? 
your periods of faithlessness and unfaithfulness, why should he not forsake you or leave you? Why? Only because of his love. That's why. God so loved that he gave because God so loved that he persevered. God would never have given unless first he had persevered. Behind the giving of God's love lies the perseverance of God's love. He refused to give up. Why, when the world collapsed, did he not say, right, we'll finish with it all and start again? Why didn't he turn his back on the whole thing? Because of his love. It is this great love which lies behind the covenant and the name. Why has the Lord gone to such great lengths to make us a covenant people with himself? Because of our love. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Why has the Lord given us, revealed to us, and given us the right to his name? Because he has loved us. So we can go on. We have also to emphasize that this love is undoubtedly connected with election. And some people might not like this, but um, it's used in the New Testament. This little part of Malachi is the, is the phrase that is used again and again in connection with the sovereignty of God. I have loved Jacob, I have hated Esau. Just because the 20th mind cannot un 20th century mind cannot understand it. <clears throat> or it runs counter to the mentality of uh, modern man, does not mean to say that it's not a fact. Behind all lies this mysterious election of God. God's love didn't follow his election. It grew, his election grows out of his love. Jacob, I have loved. This is the argument used. I have loved you, saith the Lord. You say, wherein hast thou loved, and, uh, loved us? And he says, Jacob, I have loved. But Esau, I have hated. What a bold statement. It's not explained. It's, it's mysterious. It's profound. It's, it's somehow or other, it's something that can, it's, it's just simply inexplicable. And yet there you have it. Of all the questions asked in this book, and there are quite a number, the one which must have wounded the Lord more than them all was the first. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2, Wherein hast thou loved us? I cannot think of any question that must have, not, that must have gone more to the heart of God than this one question. Wherein hast thou loved us? And you know, it's when you and I question the love of God that the Lord gets wounded. And we do question his love. So often. We say, wherein is thou loved us? Look at the way we're going. Look at the circumstances we're in. Look at this. Look at that. Wherein hast thou loved us? And yet, you see, here's the statement of the fact. I have loved you. Nor can it be emphasized enough that all the Lord's anger with his own contained in this little book grows out of his love. 
if he had not loved, he could have remained detached and indifferent. He could have forsaken his own and started somewhere else, afresh. But the eternal fact is this. God loved and God loves. And that's why you've got a little book of Malachi. Uh, Campbell Morgan once said something, in the day that you prove to me that God cannot be angry, you prove to me that God cannot love. Anger is the other side on the coin of love. We have to remember that. And you see, it's his love which lies behind his refusal to accept offerings and tithes which, though outwardly substantial, reveal no devotion. You see, the Lord looks upon us, I don't want to say as equals, but you know what I mean. He looks upon us not as little things to be loved, play things, that somehow or other can be, their little ways can be overlooked, but he looks upon us, as he says in this, in, in this book, as sons, grown-up sons. And he's not going to accept anything which is shoddy. If we somehow think we can cheat God, and this is the word used in here, if we think we can cheat God, if we think we can worm our way around the Lord, if we think we can deceive the Lord, he's not going to have it. It's not love. He has loved us, and he expects devotion. He will not be satisfied with anything but a response of love. And herein lies the little book of Malachi. The Lord just won't have it. <laughs> so, you see, this, I'm going to stop there, this is just where an awful lot comes home to us. Uh, you know, it, it's not just on a general scale, uh, but it's on a personal scale as well. Uh, the Lord, the Lord just won't accept things that are done in a sort of outward way, with no real heart in it. He disregards it. He dismisses it. He overlooks it. As he says in this book, go, go on, take that to your boss. Take that to your employer. See if he'll accept it. See if you'll get favour at his hand by uh, doing it the way you're doing it. See, some people's idea is that uh, the Lord can be treated anyway. His service can be treated anyway. His people can be treated anyway. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. See? Here is this little book. There, behind everything lies this tremendous fact of the love of God. To be loved by God is surely the most wonderful and the most miraculous and surely the most comforting and the most awesome thing in the whole universe. If you are the object of God's love, well, I can only say this, that whilst it's wonderful and it's comforting it's awesome that an almighty God without beginning 
O-N should love you. That's tremendous. I say it makes us feel so small. It humbles us. And when we realize <clears throat> that that love is going to persevere, even if he has to discipline us, even if he has to chasten us, <coughs> even if he, if he has to let us go into the far country, <coughs> it will persevere until it has refined us as gold and silver is refined. Until out from us comes a pure <coughs> offering to the Lord. That love will not give up, my dear friend. If you have come in to taste the love of God, well, that's a wonderful thing. It's a miraculous thing, but it's a fearsome thing as well. You have been laid hold of by God Almighty for himself. And he will never, no, never, never let you go. He'll get you through, in the end, to the place where he wants you. Here, then, we discover in six words the whole truth contained in the Old Testament. I have loved you, saith the Lord. There is no other adequate explanation for the Old Testament. No other adequate explanation. In the end, you have to come back to this. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Oh, I can imagine, to digress in closing, Peter, the apostle, who knew so much of the love of the Lord, when he fell away, and when in that moment of blasphemy and denial he caught sight of the face of the Lord, I can well believe that in that moment the whole Bible was explained. I have loved you, Peter. That's all. And you know those wonderful little words of the Lord when, when Mary and the others found him and he said, Go and tell my brethren and Peter. I can imagine then that, that the word sounded again. I have loved you, says the Lord. Well, what should our attitude be then? What should our attitude be then? I think our attitude must be this. We must reverence the name of the Lord. We must think upon the name of the Lord. And we must speak often one to another about the Lord. That's Malachi 3.16. Do you know that little word, fear, it doesn't mean cringe. It means reverence. Let that love of God so get into you that it will make you reverence in love the name of the Lord. Gently understand and serve that name. 
but more they that thought upon his name. That word think is very interesting. It means explore, or it means meditate upon. It means investigate, investigate the name of the Lord, explore the name of the Lord, dig into the name of the Lord. Do you know what Campbell Morton said? He said, I don't know where he got it from, I've looked everywhere to try and find it, but anyway, I'm going to quote him. He said, in his estimation, it meant, take an inventory on the name of the Lord. Get to know the wealth that is yours. Get to know the provision that is yours. Take an inventory. You know what an inventory is? If we had to take an inventory here, we'd have to go through every room and list down every single thing that belonged to that room till we'd made an inventory of the whole place. Take an inventory in the name of the Lord. Really get to know what's yours in the name of the Lord. Not just the name, but what it means. Get into the good of it. I'm sure that this love, this overwhelming love of the Lord for us, can only be answered by such a spirit which reverences his name, which, uh, which, which explores it, and which ends in fellowship, supporting one another, encouraging one another, drawing near to one another in the battle and the conflict of these days. May the Lord just help us then in this. Dear Lord, we do pray together that thou wouldst really reveal to us something more of this little book of Malachi. We need to understand it, Lord. We need its message to get into us, to really do something within us, Lord. And to that end, we bring ourselves to thee. If we despise thy name, if we have in any way been guilty of profaning thy covenant, forgive us, O Lord. We do pray, each one and all of us as a people. And dear Lord, we do cry to thee that thou wouldst make us to be those who really reverence thy name and explore it and dear Lord those who draw near to one another to support and encourage one another to speak oft with one another make it like that we do pray dear beloved Lord for we ask it all in thine own precious name Amen